0: Welcome to the Occult London podcast. This is a new podcast dedicated to exploring magic, mists in the Kabbalah as well as other topics. If you like the podcast, please write us a review and rate us on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to this on as it will really help us to get this message out there. Also be sure to visit our website at occultlondon.co.uk. Thank you. In today's episode, we are going to be continuing where we left off in the land of ancient Mesopotamia by traveling across the desert to the land of Egypt, the land of mystery, the pyramids, and the masters of magic. Egyptian history is absolutely vast. So this is not gonna be covering everything as we're limited on time, but I wanted to talk about some of the aspects and elements of astrological thought that I think are important uh, during this period. Ancient Egypt is a period that covers the time from around 3000 to 300 BC and similar to Europe. The beginnings of astronomy and astrology are not very clear but they are likely to have originated in the pre-dynastic times, again with people observing nature and natural phenomena. Observation of nature would likely have then led on to the development of religious beliefs and the connection with the complicated hierarchy of gods and goddesses that we see later on, with each divinity holding a specific power and kingdom of influence. For example, we have Osiris, god of the dead, Isis, who is the wife of Osiris and sister of the protector of the dead, Thoth, or Tahuti, who is the god of learning, and many other gods and goddesses. These gods and goddesses all developed importance and significance, and each one would have ruled a different month, which would have then uh, influenced the child's character depending on when he was born. Water is also extremely important to the ancient Egyptians, Um, Obviously, the River Nile was very much part of how they survived, how they managed to grow crops in this very kind of inhospitable uh, desert environment. And the River Nile is obviously very much part of that mythology as being an indicator of the changing seasons. The sky is also considered to be a great river. And when the pharaoh died, he was provided for everything he needed for the journey across the river to the afterlife and this is where we see these, you know, fantastically painted and carved um, boats that have been found in tombs. The Egyptians believed the sun, um, who was a very powerful deity, controlled the waters of the Nile. The sun brought the Nile to flood stage, provided irrigation to the surrounding countryside, and also made the deserts fertile and the crops grow. The moon is also very important and the Egyptians designed several gods to represent it. We get the famous Eye of Horus, which is sometimes worn as an amulet to protect against danger, was thought to be a picture of the moon. So when the Eye of the Hawk god Horus was completely open, the moon was full. Venus also has a very honoured place amongst their pantheon. The planet Venus is a brilliant Silvery star that at times is seen in the morning and other times in the evening, and she's pictured by the Egyptians as a two headed goddess. Each head wears a different crown. The dawn was known as Tiamuturi, and the evening star is Uariti. All of these things are fascinating, and you know, they really help us to understand how these ancient people saw natural phenomenon as this work of the divine. As the great Egyptologist and mystic R.A. Shwala de Lubitz wrote in his book Esotericism and Symbol, Sages leave speculation to the idol and contemplate nature. We begin to see the first influences of astronomy and mathematics in Egypt with the early stone circle at Nabta Playa, which is in a remote location. Um, it's around 700 miles south of the Great Pyramid of Egypt of Giza. and this unusual site was discovered by accident actually by a Bedouin crossing the Sahara desert who came across these mysterious pillars of rock in the desert um, it's officially the oldest stone circle in the world now. Um, not many people know about it. And it's believed to have been created more than 7,000 years ago and is likely to also be the world's oldest astronomical observatory. Although the origins of this stone circle are unclear, it's thought that it was created by cattle worshipping cult of nomadic people to mark the summer solstice and also the arrival of the monsoon. By the period of the dynastic period arriving in the 3rd millennium BCE, the 365-day period of the Egyptian calendar is in use and stars are you know, regularly observed to determine the annual flooding of the Nile, which is signified by the rising of Sirius or Sothis, also known as the Dog Star, which had a connection in ancient Egypt with the god Anubis. Interestingly, the star Sir- uh, Sirius also seems to have connections with dogs and wolves um, in different cultures. Um, for no, no, with no communication. So, for example, in Chaldea, Iraq, it was known as the Dog Star. Uh, in China, it was also known as the Heavenly Wolf, and also North American indigenous tribes talk about the star in canine terms. So, for example, apparently the Seri and the Tohono um, tribes of the southwest talked about Sirius as a dog that follows mountain sheep. So, yeah, it's an interesting idea that different, completely unconnected cultures were talking about the this star in relation to this kind of connection with dogs and wolves, etc., Um, Egyptian pyramids that everyone thinks of were aligned to the pole star Um, and the temple of Amun-Ra at Karnak was aligned to the rising of the midwinter sun. Astronomy is also very important in working out the dates of religious festivals as well as important astrological events such as conjunctions, risings and lunar phases. So the death of a king had very strong echoes with ancient Egypt and they believed that once a king was deceased their soul would rise up to the heavens and become a star. And this is described beautifully in the pyramid texts as follows. May you open your place in heaven amongst the stars of heaven. You are indeed the unique star, the comrade of who? May you look down on Osiris when he gives orders to the spirits. You stand up, far from him you are not of them you shall not be of them the ancient Egyptians later on during the intermediate period um, also used tools known as the diagonal star tables or diagonal star clocks that related sequence of star names to 10 day periods of the Egyptian year it's almost like birth signs And one of the most famous examples of these is one that's connected with the tomb of Ramses II. And I quote, Ramses' body was placed in a sarcophagus covered with astrological symbols and put inside a pyramid at Abu Simbel. There the great pharaoh lay, like Merlin in his room of wonders. Some of the wonders are still being discovered, For example, we have learnt that Ramses' tomb was created so that on a certain date the rays of the sun would find their way into the very pit of the grave. To this day, and on that very date they do, when Ramses VI, a successor to the great pharaoh, died, a star map drawn in the shape of a man was placed upon his tomb modern scientists discovered that by using this map they can chart the journey of the stars for each hour of the night throughout the year so it's just talking about this it is interesting map that can be used to kind of track these stars uh, from and connecting it with the times despite much myth and story about magic originating in Egypt um you know there's not a lot of evidence to suggest that What we call astrology today is anything like what they would have had then. The main evidence that people have used in the past is the famous Dendera Zodiac, which is beautiful, incredible Egyptian bas-relief carving on the ceiling of the Prineus or portico, of a chapel that was dedicated to Osiris in the Hathor Temple at Dendera. This zodiac is depicted as an artifact, as a map of the stars which shows the 12 constellations of the zodiac forming 36 decans of 10 days each, and the planets, and the Greeks later called these sections decanoi, which means 10 days apart. These decan groups are, or the decans are groups of first magnitude stars. That were used in the egyptian calendar which would have been based on lunar cycles of 30 days and on the rising of the star sothis or sirius and the, the sky disk focuses on the north pole star with ursa minor depicted as a jackal anubis possibly and then there is an inner disk with the signs of the zodiac Some of these are the same as the Greco Roman forms that we'll discuss in another episode. So we've got the Ram, Taurus, Scorpio, Capricorn, um, but some of them are very distinctly Egyptian. Um, So, for instance, you have Aquarius represented by the Egyptian god Happy, who was god of the annual flooding of the Nile, and he's holding two vases that gush water. Also, you have another one that's he who draws a bow. There's the goat, the water man, and the fishes. So slightly different. The Dendera zodiac has been, um, you know, there's been lots of different debate about it, its date and its provenance ranging from Ptolemaic to the New Kingdom. Uh, Common consensus normally dates it around 50 to 30 BC. So it's actually after Alexander the Great, Also, many experts contend that it was not until after Alexander the Great invades the country in 332 BC that astrology really becomes part of the Egyptian culture. The coming of Alexander the Great is a very important part of this story. Um, For those of you who do not know, Alexander the Great was the king of Macedonia or ancient Greece and is really considered to be one of the greatest military commanders in history. He was born on July the 20th, 356 BC, and he died at the age of 32 in 323, having really done much more in his life than anyone anyone does these days. So he conquered massive swathes of Asia Minor, Europe and the Middle East, and one of his conquests was um occupying Egypt in 332 BCE where he famously founded the city of Alexandria in the third and second centuries. Alexander the Great is a really fascinating character he's he's very interesting from a hermetic perspective as well and we'll probably do an episode on that at some point. Um, He's known to have consulted with magicians with astrologers for many of his campaigns. There's one account from that time um, that describes this we know that Alexander consulted astrologers. There is a legend that when he was about to be born, an astrologer named Naktanibos stood by the bedside. Nectanibos asked Alexander's mother to hold back the birth until all the stars and omens were propitious. At last, Nectanibos said, Queen, you will now give birth to a ruler of the world. And Alexander was born. There's another story about Alexander the Great when he enters into Babylon. Um, The astrologers and magicians of Babylon had predicted that Alexander would die in their city. So to avoid this fate, he is apparently meant to have entered the city by the West Gate, which was apparently not expected uh, route for the conqueror. Um, The prediction did not come true and Alexander went on to annex all of Babylonia, Persia and India. So he was kind of lucky from that point of view. He was very, Alexander the Great is very important as well from the perspective of spreading philosophy and knowledge from Greece, from Mesopotamia, from Persia and India. And also that includes, you know, some of this astrological thinking as well. Scholars of this time were very prolific and it's here that we begin to see this element of the Mesopotamian philosophy of thought, hermetic thought, mixing with some of the elements of Egypt, and this begins to kind of um, bring together the, the beginnings of um, the types of astrology that's kind of studied today. So it brings together the Babylonian zodiac with its planetary um, exaltations, the triplicities, the signs, and eclipses, while also incorporating some of the elements of the egyptian um, zodiac with the 36 decals of 10 degrees each with an emphasis on the rising the planetary gods the sign rules and then also the elements as well alexandria in egypt um, which is still there today um, became one of the most important centers of learning and in order to lead ships safely into the harbour and show off their wealth, the Ptolemaic rulers built a beautiful lighthouse uh, of of Alexandria, which was known as one of the tallest man-made buildings of the ancient world, and is still considered to be one of the seven wonders of the world. Alexandria was also famous for its library built during the reign of Ptolemy 284-246 BC, the rulers of Egypt at that point were very keen on fostering progress and knowledge and they invited philosophers, poets, and sages and mystics to all live together in the great city. This library was keen to maintain its position as the greatest source of knowledge and so with you know, royal patronage they were able to buy books, they transcribe books, they copied books and it was said that every time a ship came into the harbour um, they would search for new material and at its height this Library of Alexandria is meant to have had over 400,000 scrolls which today would be around 100,000 books. There's a really great account of the Library of Alexandria from a Greek historian and philosopher, Hecateus of Abdera from the 4th century BC who visited Egypt as a tourist and um, and he visits Thebes. He travels to the Valley of the Kings, and the te- Ramesses Temple. And he wrote writes a really interesting book called On the Egyptians, which is later transcribed by Diodorus Sicolos, or Diodorus of Sicily. And it's a really interesting um, book to read because it is talking about stuff that you know doesn't exist, and it's almost how you can actually imagine how these places would have looked at the time so it's a first-hand account i'm going to read a section of it and this is hecateus's account of his visit to the library of alexandria the three passages led into a colonnaded hall built on the plan of the Odeon, and 60 yards in length The room was filled with wooden statues of litigants, their eyes turned towards the judges, whose figures were carved along one wall. There were 30 of these judges, and they had no hands. The supreme judge was placed in the middle. Truth hung about his neck, his eyes were shut, and scrolls lay piled around him on the floor. I was told that the bearing of these figures was intended to show that judges must not take gifts, and that the Supreme Judge should have eyes only for the truth. Moving on, we entered Covered Walk, which gave access to chambers of every kind, decorated with reliefs showing a wealth of choice foods. Coloured bass reliefs surrounded us as we advanced. One showed the King offering to the divinities the gold and silver that flowed into his treasury each year from the mines of Egypt. The total sum, 32 million mine of silver, was indicated below the bas-relief. There then followed the sacred library above which were written the words the place of the cure of the soul. There followed images of all the Egyptian divinities to which the king was offering some suitable gift as if he had wished to show Osiris and the lesser gods that he had lived in piety and justice towards men and gods all his life. There was also a sumptuously built hall, the wall of which was contagious with this library. Here there was a large table with twenty triclinia, or couches and statues of Zeus, Hera and once again the king. It seems that the king's body had been buried here. All around the hall they said, was a remarkable series of chambers, with splendid images of all the sacred animals of Egypt. By climbing up through these chambers, one might have reached the entrance of the tomb. This was on the roof of the building. There too, a gold circle was to be seen, 365 cubits long and one cubit high. Images for each day of the year were set around this circle, one for each cubit, The rising and setting of the stars were recorded for each day, together with the signs with which those astral movements furnished the Egyptian astrologers. This frieze, the said, had been plundered by by Cambyses when he made himself master of Egypt. And that is a quote from the Greek historian Hecateus of Abdera, who was a 4th century um really kind of like a tourist account of his trip to to Egypt so really interesting um so yeah and as we can see from that quote you know it's a beautiful account of a place that in modern modern times you know we'll never get to see that and we can really imagine what a wonderful treasure of literature philosophy and magic must have been lost when alexandria fell I also really like the phrase the place of the cure of the soul in that particular description as it really conjures up the idea of knowledge being a gateway to knowledge of the soul. We will be doing an episode on the city of Alexandria in the future, how for now um, we can say that this city grew rapidly and it became one of the major centres of Hellenic learning in Egypt, replacing Memphis during the reign of the Ptolemaic pharaohs who were to succeed Alexander. This is the city of the great Hypatia of Alexandria, who was also an amazing Neoplatonist, a philosopher, astronomer, mathematician, as well as as well as many other things. And this is also where the astrologer Ptolemy um, was based, and many of the great Hermetic texts would have been compiled and written much of this knowledge unfortunately was sadly lost in subsequent years after the death of Alexandria and its fall to the Arabs in AD 641 that's all we have time for today however in the next episode we will be continuing with our discussion by looking at some of the ideas and origins of astrology in ancient Greece and i wanted to finish this episode with a beautiful hymn to nut the sky goddess of ancient egypt which is from the Pyramid Texts Hymn to Nut, the Sky Goddess O Nut, you have extended yourself over your son, the Osiris. You have snatched him out of the hand of Set. Join him to yourself, Nut. You came, snatch your son. Behold, you came from this great one like yourself. O Nut, cast yourself upon your son, the Osiris. O Nut, cast yourself upon your son, the Osiris. Form you him, O great fashioner. This great one is among your children. Form you him, O great fashioner. This great one is among your children. Geb was to Nut, you did become a spirit. You were a mighty goddess in the womb of your mother Tefnut when you were not born form you with life and well-being he shall not die strong as was your heart you did leap in the womb of your mother in the name of nut o perfect daughter mighty one in your mother you are crowned like a king of the north make this man a spirit soul in you let him not die o great lady who did come into being in the sky who are mighty, who does make happy and does fill every being with your beauty. The whole earth is under you. You have taken possession of it. You have encompassed the earth. Everything is in your hands. Grant you that this I may be in your like an imperishable star. You have associated with Geb in thy name of sky. You have united the earth in every place. O mistress over the earth, you are above your father's shoe you have the mastery over him he has loved you so much that he set himself under you in everything you have taken possession of every god for yourself with his boat you have made them shine like lamps assuredly they shall not cease from you like the stars thanks very much for joining us this week on the Occult london podcast hope you've enjoyed it please make sure to check out our website at awkwardlondon.co.uk where you can subscribe to the show thank you and good night